Amen. Good morning, Orchardville Church. Wow, it's been, it feels like it's been forever since we had a chance to say that. Uh, man, we missed last week. Did anybody miss last week as much as I did? Man, it just felt so bizarre uh, not being here. Uh, so I am, I'm thrilled beyond words to, to be here with all of you this morning. I hope you're as excited as I am. So since we've been here, there's, there's been a, wow, there's been a whole lot going on in the world. I mean, we've had, we had snow event, and that's a rare thing that, that we are not able to gather as a church uh, because of snow, so that impacted us here locally. But at a national level, we've had all kinds of craziness going on in the last couple weeks that we have not had a chance to speak about yet. So a week ago Friday, uh, there were uh, two different marches that were happening in Washington, D.C. Uh, that were basically completely ideological uh, opposites from each other. One was a women's march which really promoted and focused heavily on the right, uh, almost stridently uh, for a woman to have an abortion. Uh, there was also a march uh, for pro-life in in advocating for the life of an innocent, unborn child. In response to one of those marches, the Right to Life march, there was a group of young men from a Catholic high school in Kentucky uh, that gathered uh, in Washington, D.C. to support uh, and participate in the Right to Life and as they were waiting uh, for their bus to go home at the end of their event, uh, they were verbally attacked and assaulted by another group that was in Washington, D.C., uh, the black uh, Hebrew Israelites. What was said to those young men uh, is things that we cannot repeat in a church environment. Honestly, we shouldn't repeat them anywhere. But if you've watched news, you, you've seen it. You know what was being said. And then into the middle of that, there was another group of people that were in Washington, D.C., Native Americans who were there for an indigenous people's march. And into the middle of this conflict or this, this flaunting of, of an, a verbal assault from the black Hebrew Israelites toward these young men, uh, a few of these Native Americans walked into and had what looked like a confrontation, and the news that the story that be, became developed around that made these young men look like some of the most heinous young men that have ever walked the face of the earth. They were vile beyond description, and their school ought to be burned with them in it. Then on Tuesday of this last week, the state of New York, on the 46th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, uh, signed and celebrated with applause the right to abort a child right up to minutes before its birth. It's been an insane two weeks in America. Now, Christians have been appalled and angry at what they've been watching. And so what do we do? How do we respond? 
When, if, if you watched anything on the news or if you watched anything on social media, I mean, you cannot have missed all of these events and all of what's happening in the world around us. And so what is the right response for a follower of Jesus Christ to this insanity that we're watching in the last couple of weeks? Prayer is certainly part of it, without a doubt. But I think God in his sovereignty allowed us to begin a series of messages two weeks ago now that I believe actually will help us navigate a proper response to what we're seeing going on in our world and in our culture. And because it's been a couple of weeks since we began this, I want to I repeat and sort of recapture uh, uh, some of the main points from two weeks ago so that it will kind of give us a jumping off point uh, for this morning. All right, so two of the main things were, and it was sort of the impetus for this series of messages, is that there are way too many non-Christians who are looking at the Christian world and the church in general, and they're saying, I want nothing to do with your God because I don't want to be like you. And you know what they're saying, in essence, is, is if your God is anything like you, I want nothing to do with your God because there's no way in the world that I ever want to look like, act like, or sound like you. On the flip side of that coin, there are way too many Christians who are looking at the world and what's going on and saying, thank God we're not them. Does that sound a little bit like what you've been seeing in the last couple of weeks? Well, the problem with that for Christians, when we're looking at what is going on in the world and we're chastising and we're criticizing, we're going, thank God I'm not like them. The problem for us is that we're called to be in the world and to carry out the mission of Jesus in the world. How many of you know that we are called ambassadors of Jesus Christ? Do you know that? Amen. All right. We're called ambassadors. Do you know what an ambassador does? An ambassador represents the wants, desires, and preferences and the agenda of the country that they are representing or the king that they are representing. That's their only job. It's not the ambassador's agenda. It's the agenda of the country or the king they represent. We are called to be in the world representing the mission and principles of our king, Jesus. And just as a reminder, Matthew chapter 23, which we shared two weeks ago, Jesus said that he was willing to embrace the very people that killed the prophets that God the Father sent. He was willing to bring them close to his heart and embrace the killers of the prophets of God. And the only reason that he hadn't, according to this passage of Scripture, is because they wouldn't let him. It's not because Jesus wouldn't. They wouldn't let him. It was their choice, not his. And if Jesus 
is willing to embrace the people who would actually kill the prophets, then we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We are representing his will in the world. If Jesus will embrace murderers, then we must be willing to embrace anyone who is willing to move toward Jesus Christ. And we cannot let, I don't want to be like you, stand between somebody else and salvation in Christ Jesus. We just can't. And Paul, as a reminder to the church at Corinth, which was probably a culture that was in just as much of a mess as ours, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 11, he reminded the Christians there, hey, such were some of you. Don't ever get on your high horse about where you think you are spiritually and how much better you think you are than everybody who's doing all these vile and terrible things out there. Such were some of you. He was saying, hey, you were just as far from God. You were just as depraved. You were just as lost. You were just as messed up as the people now who are still continuing in the sin which you have left behind. In other words, Paul was telling them and all of us here that we're all ugly ducklings. We don't naturally fit in God's kingdom. God is holy. We're not. God has chosen to reach down and make a way to include us in his kingdom and nothing, absolutely nothing, makes us any more deserving of that than the person committing the worst thing that we can imagine in the culture as we see it. Somebody in this church needs to say amen because that is a truth. And so that brings us to this morning's message and that is what do we do about it? How do we go about dealing with that? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll dive in. Father, uh, this is, God, there's so much going on in the world and so much that, that frustrates us so much that angers us at a personal level. And yet, God, we are called to be followers of Jesus Christ first and foremost. Lord, we are called to be your ambassador, to carry out your mission in the world. So Lord, help us to set aside our own agendas this morning and let us hear clearly what your word has to say about this. And Lord, help us to live it out in day-by-day fashion, even when we don't feel like it. God, bless your word, bless your church. May we be challenged and changed by it. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. So what do we do about it? Well, there's a man by the name of Gordon McDonald who is the chancellor at Denver Seminary, and he spent uh, actually quite a few years at a church called Grace Chapel in the Boston, Massachusetts area. And actually, for several years, uh, he was Leslie's pastor. Uh, Leslie lived in the Boston area for a few years in her early 20s before we met and got married. And so Gordon McDonald was, was her pastor for a brief period of time. And Gordon McDonald has famously said that the one thing that the church can offer that the world cannot is grace. It's the one 
thing that the world can find in the church that it cannot find anywhere else. So what do I mean by that? Well, the world can find acceptance. It can find encouragement. It can find laughter. It can find friendship. It can find advice. It can find counsel. It can find help. It can find all other sorts of things in the world at large. But the one thing that it cannot find in the world at large is grace. Why? Because grace, real grace, is the unmerited favor of God. It is receiving what we don't deserve. The real origination of grace is not something that we worked up and we figured out. It is God. It is his unmerited favor. And as a result, the church who is filled by people who have received this unmerited favor of God's uh, love toward us called grace, the church should be a bubbling fountain of life-giving grace. And there is nowhere else in the world that somebody can or should be able to find that very thing. And what the world needs right now more than anything else is a sense of that grace because grace changes everything. You know why? Because you're born to run from God without a sense of grace. See, if you see God as only a, a, a hard-handed, heavy-handed, mean, angry, judgmental God, who wants to go hang out and run toward that God? Anybody? Does anybody want to run, hang out, and give themselves to a mean, angry God? In the absence of grace which is compelling to come in the absence of grace, we are all prone to run in the opposite direction. And unless and until the world is finding that sense of grace in the church, they will run from God. And I'll tell you something else, church. Even those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, who have received his grace, we have to keep reminding ourselves that we need it. You don't ever get quit needing grace. You don't ever get over the need for grace. We have to remind ourselves that we still need it just as much as those who are lost in the world. And you know why? Because we know we mess up. Now, we're talking about no perfect people allowed, and this is important. Because we know we mess up, but here's what happens in church. We don't want anybody to know that we messed up. Right? I mean, you feel it in your heart. You know what you did, and you know that you messed up, but heaven forbid that anybody else know that. Because the church is a place for perfect people. The church is a place where people got their act all together, hang out. Does anybody here think that they have a better handle on their commitment to Christ than the Apostle Paul? Anybody? I wouldn't think so. You know what Paul said? Paul said in the book of Romans chapter 7, 15, he said, I don't really understand myself for I, I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do 
what I hate. Now, see, most of us here this morning, if we're being honest, we know what Paul means. We get totally what he's saying because time after time, we find ourselves doing the very thing, saying the very thing, thinking the very thing that we said we would never do again. And then we run from God instead of to God because of the guilt. The guilt, right? Because you've let God down one more time. You said, I will never do that again, but you did it again. You don't want anybody else to know that you did it again because you're perfect. But instead of running to God, you run from God. And you know what you're running from when you do that? You're not running from God's condemnation. You're running from his grace. You're not running away from God's judgment. You're running away from the very thing you need the most, and that is his grace. And church, listen to me. If you're not experiencing God's grace on a daily basis, if you don't understand it on a daily experiential basis, there is no way in the world you can share God's grace with the rest of the world. You're not living in his grace, you can't extend his grace to anybody else. Now, we, we, we get that. We know we've messed up. We know that we need grace. We know the rest of the world needs grace. But instead of showing that grace to those who are really, really in a bad place, and in spite of our own flaws, in spite of the fact that we just did what Paul wrote about, you know what we do? We go and we get our spiritual work belt and we put our spiritual work belt on and we start trying to fix people and point out everything that they've been doing wrong. And church, I wanna make unequivocally clear this morning because I think the Bible makes this unequivocally clear. It is not our job to fix somebody. That is God's job alone. Our job is to point them to the grace of Jesus by demonstrating that grace ourselves. Why is that so important? How do you think most people form their idea of who God is? By the Christians. Most people form their image of God based on what they see in people who call themselves Christians. And if we don't demonstrate grace to the world, those very people who need God's grace think he's not a God of grace because they don't see any grace in us. And so in light of that, we must start building an environment of grace. We gotta do it. The church has to become an environment of grace because we need it. Even if we've been saved, we need it. And clearly those far from God need it as well. And I wanna make, I wanna drive this point home this morning. I encourage you to write something of this down, whatever strikes you. And that is this, that grace absolutely positively recognizes the mess in the world, it does. 
but it focuses on the possibilities and not the mess. Grace focuses on the people, not the problem. The world has offered a cheap substitute for grace. You know what it's called? It's called tolerance. You hear that word all the time, right? Tolerance, 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 tolerance. Although it always kind of amuses me that the people who holler tolerance, they're the ones who are the least tolerant. It's another subject. But you know that tolerance is really nothing more than a cheap substitute for grace? It's the world's version of it. Here's the problem. Do you know what tolerance actually focuses on? Focuses on the action. Focuses on the activity. See, tolerance is about what a person is doing. And you're supposed to be okay with whatever they're doing. If you're not, you're not tolerant. That's the world's version of grace. Grace, though, focuses not on the problem but on the person because the person needs God's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is by grace you're saved. There is nothing the world needs more than grace. It's not tolerance the world needs. It's grace the world needs. You know, sometimes I, I, I see something like that and, and man, we as Christians, man, do we have a tendency to want to focus on the problem. I, get, I served this country in the United States Infantry. Most of my life, I, have, I get choked up and emotional when I hear the singing and the playing of the national anthem. It stirs me to my very soul. And when people seem to be doing things that I feel like would, would damage the United States of America, which I love with every fiber of my being, it bothers me. And I want to focus on what they're doing because it makes me angry. But when I do, I have forgotten my ambassadorship for Jesus Christ. Because my ambassadorship for Jesus Christ tells me that my primary goal and my primary reason for being here is to point others to him. There was a time when Jesus' disciples was walking through a field and they were plucking heads of grain off on the Sabbath day. Well, the Pharisees, whoa, whoa, we can't have that. They were looking at the problem. How dare your, your disciples break the Sabbath? See, they were focused on the problem. They didn't care what was going on with Jesus' disciples. And you know what Jesus said? He said, well, let me just, let me just share a little insight here with you, Mr. Pharisee. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know what he's saying? You got your priorities out of whack. You have your priorities out of whack, Mr. Pharisee. You're focused on the problem and you don't even care about the person that is dealing with it. I made the Sabbath for the man, not man for the Sabbath. The priority is completely 180 degrees out of whack. And when we start looking only at the mess and the problems, we've done exactly what the Pharisees were griping about Jesus' disciples. We are looking at the problem, not the person, and grace is all about the person. So what does it mean to build an environment of grace and why does that even matter? 
Well, let me throw you a, a little bit of a curveball question here as we try to answer that. How many of you ever planted something? Raise your hand. If you've ever planted anything, doesn't matter what it is. All right. This may sound like a trick question. It's not, what did you want that to do when you planted it? Want to grow. Oh, shocking. When you plant something, you want it to grow. You may not have ever thought of God in this light, but the Lord is a gardener. Do you realize that he began by planting a garden? as the centerpiece of his creation to host the height of his creation, which was mankind. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner Who's got a vineyard? The king of heaven is like a landowner who has planted something to grow. What do you think Jesus wants when he plants the seed of life and forgiveness in our hearts? He wants and intends it to grow. That's what he is expecting. And Nobody here ever, this morning ever planted something without intending it to grow, and God doesn't plant anything without intending and expecting it to grow as well. And so when we say that it's God's job to grow someone, what we're saying is that growth is God's job and providing the right environment is our job. Like, well, I'm not really sure if I'm following you, Coach Mar. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's the first passage of Scripture I gave you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 7. You're going to recognize this when we start reading it. Paul was writing. He said, who then's Paul? Who's Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed. As the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now listen, Paul and Apollos both had very, very important jobs. They did. But neither one of them, by Paul's own admission here, neither one of them could make anything grow. So what they could do, they did do. And what was that? They worked the ground, they planted the seed, and they watered it so that God could come and do what God does and create the growth. They created the environment God brought the growth. Now, while we're talking about working in a field, planting, watering, and bringing growth, I would suggest to you this morning that a lot of times we interrupt 
or destroy sometimes completely the spiritual momentum of people who are coming toward Jesus. They haven't made it there yet, but they're moving toward Jesus. Or sometimes brand new believers, we interfere with their growth or mess it up totally because we want to come alongside of them and fix where they're at. We think that their growth is not fast enough or it's not quite right, and we want to fix it. You ever seen that? Absolutely. It's a lot like, I think, what Jesus told in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. So if you've got that, flip over to that. Matthew 13, Jesus was telling a parable called the wheat and the tares. That's how we know it. And we pick up the story in verse 27. He says, so the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, do you not, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? In other words, weeds. You, You put out good stuff. How does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. And so the servant said to him, well, do you want us to go out and gather them up? You want us to go rip them out? But he said, no. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. And Jesus said something really shocking. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus was willing to take the risk of saying, let them grow together. You know that a wheat and a tear look a whole lot alike. You sometimes can't tell the difference. And whose job is growth? It's God's. It's not ours. It's God's. And so when we decide to be the ones responsible for growth, we come along somebody and we start trying to make decisions that we are not qualified to make, church. We start deciding where somebody ought to be on their spiritual journey. We start deciding what it ought to look like on their spiritual journey. And we start trying to either fix them or separate them from somebody else. And in the process, we do more damage than most of us ever conceive as possible. If Jesus was willing to say, let them grow together, I'll do the separating I think we can trust that that's good advice for us. But hear me now, whether you're a follower of Christ already or you're not, never, ever, ever mistake God's grace for a license to sin. It is not. Romans 6.1, the same writer of of uh, talking about grace in Corinthians, wrote Romans, and Paul said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin, and that's those who have received salvation in Christ Jesus, we died to our sin. How can those of us who have died to sin live any longer in it? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. God's plan for everyone 
is spiritual growth. It's not to keep sinning. It's not grace says, hey, you just do whatever you want to do. That's not the grace we're talking about. It's a grace that says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I know, there is no condemnation out of those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the grace that says, come to me. Come to me. And when we come to Christ, we are able to begin to grow because we know we're not condemned by the God who has the right to condemn us all. It is not grace to keep sinning. It is grace to grow. But the problem that most of us have with spiritual growth is it's a messy process. It is. Spiritual growth is a messy process. Most of you have experienced this in your life. This is our oldest son. I think this was, what, last year now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> now you you see that and obviously he has made a mess but it's adorable isn't it i mean you look at that and go oh he's so cute that's so cute you expect that he's a toddler you would not expect that from an adult am i right okay that is perfectly acceptable because at his stage of life at his stage of growth you wouldn't expect anything else but if he were sitting in that chair looking like that and he's 54 years old that's a different story entirely And when we become growth inspectors and start trying to decide what's the proper growth and what's not, we have to be very careful that we're understanding where a person is on their spiritual trajectory. Do you know that there are some people who have been follow, or Christians, born again Christians for 20, 30 years, and they're still toddlers spiritually? You realize that? Now, Maybe that says something about the environment that we've created, that they're still toddlers spiritually after 20 years of, of salvation. But if they're still toddlers spiritually, we can't expect them to be looking and acting like a mature believer. See, spiritual age is not the same thing as physical age. But we want to evaluate it almost the exact same way and we have no business doing that because only God really truly knows if that stage of life for a person in their spiritual journey is acceptable or not. And since we can't make something grow, then our job is to provide the right ingredients as much as possible and the right climate so that that guy, that young believer can grow healthy as a believer. Amen? So we have to see ourselves as a greenhouse that's providing the right climate, the right nutrients, the right care for everything to grow here at its pace of growth. You know, everything grows at a different pace. Did you know that? Its pace of growth. And one of the key ingredients and creating a culture and maintaining a culture of growth is grace. Unless and until we are providing an environment of grace, we will never see the kind of spiritual growth both in the believers 
and those who still need to come to Christ for salvation. We just won't see it because growth requires an abundance of grace. That needs to be our goal as a church, to be that bubbling fountain of life-giving grace. But I wanna add one other ingredient to a culture of growth because this is really important. That's the ingredient of community, of relationship, of friendship. See, because God made us to live in community, out of everything that he made, he said it was all good except one thing. You remember that? When he made Adam and he saw that Adam was alone, he said it's what? It's not good. Everything else was good. But Adam was the one who did not have a corresponding partner. He says not good. Because we're not meant to live in isolation. We're not meant to do life alone. There is a well-known Christian writer. I've read several of his books. Some of you may have too. His name is Henry Cloud. He's a psychiatrist, a Christian psychiatrist. He's made this statement. He said, virtually every emotional and psychological problem from addictions to depression has alienation or emotional isolation at its core. I just process that for a second. While you're looking at that and contemplating it, uh, I probably will add on the uh, Facebook page of the church, uh, maybe tomorrow, uh, there is a video, it's about a 12, 15 minute video uh, called a TED Talk. Some of you know what that is, some of you don't. TED Talks are these kind of inspirational uh, discussions. They're not Christian oriented at all. Sometimes they have Christian principles, but they're not Christian. And I saw this one talk where a guy talks about addictions and he talks about isolation. And he makes a very, very compelling case that the greatest contributor to addiction of whatever kind it may be is isolation. And when you remove isolation and you build community, that those, those tendencies that push us toward addictions begin to fade into the background and living in community becomes more important than the addiction that is feeding us. And he, he makes a really interesting statement. He says, the reason that we start to pursue the, the addiction is because we cannot bear to be present in our current life. Cannot bear to be present in our current life. Why? Because when you feel isolated and disconnected from everyone and everything else, there's no purpose. There's no support system. And so you look for the easiest way to ease that pain, and it almost always results in addictions of various kinds. Church, if we want God, we want to join God in the growth process for our benefit as well as other people, then we've got to not only be living in and extending grace, we've got to be living in and extending community. That's why these Sunday sync groups are so important. Now, we got off to a great start two weeks ago. It was our first Sunday. Still a little sketchy on the weather, but then we missed a week. You know, and Sunday sync is not a normal part of most of the lives of our church. I get that. So I don't know what the numbers look like today, 
But I have a sense under normal, natural sort of inclination is that it wouldn't be as good as it was two weeks ago. Why? Well, because that's not our habit. We haven't built that habit yet. And we missed a week. So that just kind of threw the whole thing off. Church, if we want to be the kind of place that God wants to use to see people numbers of people coming to Jesus Christ, not ones and twos, but tens and twenties and fifties and a hundred people coming to Jesus Christ. We got to be a place of grace and we got a place that's got to be a place that is living in and extending community. It's not going to happen by accident. It has to happen on purpose with intent. And I will take that one step further because community is necessary for healthy growth, but most of us probably need a partner to make that work. I don't know about you, I have, I've wasted money in the past on gym memberships. Anybody ever done that? Um, man, I mean, when I was in high school, I played football, man, I went, I worked out, uh, I got pretty strong. I mean, I was, I was lifting really, really good weight. I loved it. When I got out of college, I'm like, man, I got to go back to that. I got to be, be pumping some iron, you know. Two different times in my life, I have joined gym memberships, and I think out of that whole time, and who, probably two or $3,000, I, I would guess. I don't know, but it's probably at least two or $3,000 I've invested in gym memberships. That probably works out to about $100 a visit. It's an expensive gym. And you know what? I didn't go. I didn't have anybody there to work with. I went by myself, and you know, and you can get excited once or twice, but when you're not working with anybody else, it loses its appeal after a little while, and that gym membership just becomes an anchor on your finances, and it ain't worth it. I would say the same thing is true in our faith development and growth. If you are trying to do this by yourself, it will not sustain. You hear me? It will not sustain. Now, Gateway Church, who is kind of the impetus for the book uh, that we are kind of building this sermon off of, is uh, No Perfect People Allowed. They, they sort of took this idea of what happens in a gym environment, and they, they decided to build uh, something around that to help spiritual growth, which was to replace accountability partners. Has anybody in here ever tried to do, be in, a, in an accountability partnership? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, there's a few of you. All right, I have. You know what? They usually don't work. Once in a while they work, they usually don't. You know why? Because here's what, here's what accountability partners normally mean to the people that are in them. You're just, you're just sitting with each other, telling each other how bad you messed up. Well, I sinned again this week. I sinned again this week. I sinned, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned. And the other person's like, you slob, you slob, you slob. And so you, you invest all this time just beating each other up. And then when you decide you're tired of beating each other up, now you're just like being okay with each other's sin. Well, it's no big deal. And we're tired of beating each other up, so now we'll just say, well, we sinned. Okay, I sinned. All right, we're good. Where's the growth? Now, that's not to say it's never happened. I'm just saying it's rare. Accountability partnerships don't work very good, but you know what does? Training partners. Because when I used to go to the gym in high school, you know why it worked so well for me? Because I had people I was working out with and we were encouraging each other. We were pushing each other toward more than we had already accomplished. 
And so Gateway decided to take that idea and build something that they call training partners to replace accountability partners. And so they got a few tips. I'm going to put these on the screen for you. You will talk about these more next week in your uh, Sunday sync groups. But let me just give you these real quick. Number one, accept and encourage as often as possible. You know, the Bible tells us to encourage one another, right? You're familiar with that passage of Scripture? We do far more criticizing than we do encouraging. So a training partner would be to accept and encourage each other as often as possible. Don't just make it up, but encourage when you can. Ask questions often and give advice only with permission. You know why? Because most people don't really want your counsel. They don't want to hear what you've got to say. But if you say, hey, can I share something with you? And they say, yeah, I wish you would. Then they'll listen because they've given you permission to speak into their life. Give reproof only when absolutely necessary. Is it necessary sometimes? Yes. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Once in a while, when, when somebody is not doing what they, you know that they need to do, you've encouraged them, hey, how are you doing? Let, you know, uh, I think you can do better here, you can do better than there, what's your goal, let's get there. And then over time, you're like, man, they're just not making progress. Well, brother, sister, let me tell you, here's what I'm seeing. But do that only when necessary. Give condemnation never. Why? Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's not do on our part what God is not willing to do on his. Condemnation never and protect, protect confidentiality always. Always. Don't, we talked about this on Wednesday night. You know, one of the worst things afflicting most is this thing called prayer gossip. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, well, let me tell you about somebody. I, I just really... I just need you to pray about this with me. And all you're doing is you're, you're saying it so you can gossip. When somebody that you are working with and, and entrusting your life, don't you dare run around and tell somebody else what's going on in their life unless you have already discussed it. Don't you do it. You know why? Because you destroy an environment of grace and grace is contributor to growth. And so we're squashing growth. Church, grace and community are incredibly important on the part of the church to reach the lost. And not only reach the lost, but to grow our own spiritual experience. But I know I know that there are still some people that are not convinced because they think, well, we have to show them how outrageous their sin is. We have to. And so I wasn't sure if I was going to do this this morning. I came prepared, but I wasn't sure if I'd do it, but I just feel like I need to. So I beg your forgiveness. Indulge me for a few more minutes, but I, I, I'm going to read this. I'm not going to preach it. I'm going to read it. Um. I had some exchanges on Facebook this week. Some public, some private, behind the scenes and messages. 
some with non-Christians and some with Christians. And I had some Christians really, really giving me a hard time about what I was saying on Facebook. I'm quoting Scripture. Now, if you happen not to agree with Scripture, that's not my issue. But what I know from that exchange is that we have a lot of Christians who, who will hear exactly what I've just preached, and they'll go, but, but wait a minute, wait a minute. We have to let them have it. I know what you just said about grace. I know what you just said about community, but man, we, we just, we got to call it what it is. I understand. So I took some prayerful time and I shared this on Facebook. I know not everyone is on Facebook and even those who are, you may not have seen this and that's just totally okay. But I feel like I need to read this because this is in response to what was happening on my own Facebook exchanges this week. And that was an exchange to what's happening in the world this week and is indicative about the very thing that we are talking about. So indulge me for a few minutes while I read this to you and we'll conclude the service. In fact, I'll invite the worship team to come up here so when I'm done, we're ready for responding to the Lord. Here was what I said. What is sin? What is sin? See, how we understand or view the answer to that question determines a great deal about the conduct of our faith. See, how can anyone look at the law that was just passed in the state of New York, accompanied by a reaction of applause and joy, and think that that's a great new day in America? How can anyone hear someone bragging about how many of their own unborn babies they have aborted and not think that we have fallen to a level of humanity that we have never seen? I abhor what happened in New York. I cringe when I hear an individual or a group of legislators applauding the death of children. But as much as it offends me, it offends an almighty God even more. But God... But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Titus 3.5 tells us not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is unequivocally clear that no one, not a single one of us, have done anything to deserve his grace, his mercy, or his salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that it is all an act of God so that no one can boast. Do you get that? There will be no bragging in heaven about how good you were or how you deserved salvation. Not a single word. If sin is all about the act, such as abortion or murder or stealing then certainly some of us are better than others. There are people whose worst sin is lying. They live good, commendable lives, and in comparison, they are far better 
than those terrible people who have done unspeakable things. But if sin is all about the act, then the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount make no sense whatsoever. Uh, he tells people that they have heard not to commit adultery. Well, that is certainly a terrible action. But then he says, if you've looked at someone else with lust, well, you've committed adultery in your heart. But wait, you didn't actually commit the act of adultery. So Jesus obviously must have misspoken here. But he didn't stop there. He said, if, if the law says not to murder, which is an even worse act than adultery... Jesus said, if you hate someone, then you've committed murder in your heart. Well, Jesus obviously doesn't understand what apparently lots of Christians do. And that is it, that if your sin or your actions are worse than my sins or actions, then we should scream and shout at people and tell them how terrible they are. We have a lot of modern Christians that apparently need to set Jesus straight on his own teaching. Because it's time to get in some people's face and let them have it with both barrels. At least that seems to be the logic of some Christians. But God. God showed love to us before we ever even drew a breath. What sin did we commit before we were born? I don't know about you. I don't remember the sins I committed before birth. But my Bible tells me that I'm born separated from God. Why? Because of all my terrible sin before entering the world? Well, obviously not. I'm born separated from God because sin entered the world through Adam and we are all sons and daughters of Adam and are born with a sin nature. That's why Jesus made the following comments to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, he said, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And this preceded perhaps the most well-known verse in the Bible, John three sixteen: For God so loved, loved the world, the heinous, horrible world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what was the point of this dialogue with Nicodemus? What does it mean to us today, right now? Our birth into the world is into a sin nature. That is the truth of sin. Sin is not primarily an action. Sin is primarily a condition. And that condition separates us from God. Not a single person has ever lived in such a way to deserve a single iota of God's grace. As a result, none of us stand any more righteous before God than another in our natural condition. And that's why we need a Savior. And that's why we all need salvation. See, no matter how good you may have thought you were before salvation, you were no better than the people applauding the killing of babies. Each of us stand equally deserving of God's judgment. 
And by the way, that's God's judgment, not ours. And the last time I checked, God did not abdicate his kingship or call me or anyone else to take charge of the judging. So let me summarize. As a follower of Christ and as a human being, I grieve beyond mere words for what I'm seeing happen in the world as we watch. But we will never argue or shout someone into salvation or heaven. We will never make ourselves more righteous by pointing out the sin in someone else. Jesus didn't call the woman at the well a bunch of demeaning names in order to point out her sinful condition. He did acknowledge the sinful condition of her life and her circumstances, but he did so with grace. What was the result? She placed her faith in a loving Savior and invited an entire town to join her in meeting Jesus. We don't have to like or approve the condition of the world, but isn't that the very reason that Jesus came in the first place? Jesus was called a friend of sinners, not because he ignored their sin. If that was the case, his crucifixion was a waste of time. He was called a friend of sinners because he built relationship with them and lovingly pointed out their need for a Savior. We should follow our Lord's example. And if we want, then why would we even call ourselves a Christian in the first place? Church, the world is a mess. And what it needs is a place where the grace of God is abundant, where we point people to the loving nature of an almighty Savior who sacrificed himself on a cross to pay for the worst acts that any of us can imagine, not because it's about the act, but because we're born separated from him, every one of us. And until and unless we become that church, God is not going to trust the lost to us. You know why? Because he wants growth. Our job is to provide the environment for the growth. When we do that, God will bring the harvest. Amen? Church, it's time for us to be the church that shows the world that Lord loves them. He died for them. And while their sin may separate them from Jesus, the cross will bring them together in connection. Amen? Let's stand. If you need Jesus in your life as your Savior this morning, come. Church, whatever battle you've been fighting, come deal with it right now. We're not going to have a long altar call this morning, so let's just deal with it right now. Don't wait, waste time. Don't wait. Let's fill this altar and let's pray that God turns this church, Orchardville Church, into a place where the lost know that they are loved and Jesus died and loves them. Father, do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, come. Let's come. Let's do. Let's move.